From the Wheeler Centre, you're listening to the Fifth Estate Podcast. Here's our host, journalist, anthropologist and broadcaster Sally Warhaft with this week's edition. Intergenerational warfare or how future generations will live with the consequences of decisions that have been made and are being made at the moment and not made at the moment about how we organise our economies and our societies and our lives. Joining me on stage are two very distinguished men. Satyajit Das is a former banker and uh, current best-selling author, not just former. Uh, He anticipated the GFC in 2006. He identified many of the subsequent problems that have afflicted the planet since. Das is the author of Traders, Guns and Money and also Extreme Money. Uh, And uh, uh, in 2014, Bloomberg nominated him as one of the 50 most influential financial thinkers in the world. His latest book is A Banquet of Consequences, How We Consumed, Have We Consumed Our Own Future? It will be on sale uh, after this event, and uh, Dimix is the bookseller. Thank you, Dimix. Uh, and uh, it is a, a real pleasure to have Das back here at the Fifth Estate. He's one of very, very few uh, people that's uh, had a return gig. Please give him a big welcome. John Daly is the Chief Executive of the Grattan Institute and uh, his work there focuses on economic and budgetary reform. His interests are in uh, government prioritisation and uh, when government intervention is justified. Also the limits to government, so um, areas that will be important for our conversation tonight. He's previously worked for the Victorian Department of Premier and Cabinet and for the ANZ where he was the managing director of the online stockbroker E-Trade Australia. Welcome John, thank you. Das, uh, this book is a tale of the world where our most prominent organisational structure, the economy, Uh, is completely out of control and has pretty much no alignment with reality. Uh, Am I overstating it? Perhaps just a little. (laughs) (laughs) I think the reality is, if you actually go back a little bit and ask a really simple question, which is, what was 2008 all about? And I think, with the benefit of hindsight, we can see it was the first signs of something warning us of the models we had. And in terms of what it means, and it means really for the fate of the human race, is it pointed to four issues. The first issue was that the way we structured our financial system in terms of how we generated growth and living standards improvements, which is mainly built on debt and use of the financial system, was deeply flawed. And parallel to that, we're now starting to see signs of other stresses, one of which is how we use scarce resources like petroleum, like food, like water. And the third element of that is the environment. And underlying all of that is an economic model which says we consume today, we push the costs, we push all the problems into the future. 
And what I think the economy does is do that very well through things like low interest rates, negative interest rates, and all the policies we have. But we have them elsewhere as well. And what I think history will record ultimately is in 2008, we had the warning. We could have done something about it. But the fact of the matter is we have spent eight years now basically buying time, which we've wasted. And I always remember the line in Richard III, I wasted time, and now time wastes me. You wonder what Das's idea of very bleak might be. <laughs> uh, you know, Sally, about bleak, uh, one of the things is I've learned in life that facts don't really much care for our ability to stomach them. That really true, and in <laughs> fact, it points me to the review in the New York uh, Times of the Banquet of Consequences suggests there's a blizzard of facts in this book. Which By the way, she didn't mention it. It was a terrible review. It's killed the book in the States, but that's a different thing. <laughs> no, it's the blizzard of facts that kills it, isn't it? John, what do you think about the, the current state of affairs, and what was the GFC, in your opinion, uh, um, a part of a, a normal course of economic fluctuations and crises, or was it a break? Was it a, a, a really significant moment in economic history? Well, it certainly wasn't normal. Um, uh, on pretty much any view of the world, it's the worst thing that's happened economically since at least 1927. Um, so that makes it pretty big in the scheme of things. That sort of suggests it was a roughly one-in-a-hundred-year event, um, most of us are, if we're lucky, going to get one of those in our lifetime and maybe not that many. So there's no question it was very significant. There's no question also that the aftermath has been very odd. Um, uh, Andy Haldane, the, governor, uh, the uh, chief economist at the Bank of England, has done a fabulous chart, which is global interest rates since 3000 BC. Uh, because, <laughs> because he found himself saying, oh, well, you know, interest rates are at their lowest ever, and then he thought, well, I'd better actually check this. So some poor analyst in the back rooms of the Bank of England had to kind of crawl through Homer and Sulla and then, you know, God knows how many years' worth of data from, um, a, from around the globe and concluded that, yes, global interest rates are at their lowest for at least 5,000 years. Um, so the aftermath has been very odd, a world in which you have negative interest rates... Um, a world in which um, uh, central bankers sort of tell you, well, I don't quite know how we get back to normal, but I can tell you that negative interest rates is not normal. Uh, that's not a normal world. So, yes, it was a very big event, and, yes, the aftermath is significant, and I su suspect that Das would say, of course, in some ways, it was, in fact, a blip. Because when you look at the IMF's charts about um, uh, future government deficits and you know, their projections going forwards, actually the global financial crisis is this kind of like little thing sort of here. And then they kind of go up like this over the following 30, 40 years as essentially a whole series of demographic problems cut in. Um, that's the big, really big event. And I don't know that we've yet figured out how we deal with that one. And it kind of puts the, the GFC, I think, into context that there is this very large issue in terms of, particularly in Western Europe, rapidly ageing populations, pension liabilities which are manifestly not fundable, um, and no one quite knows how we get out of that one either. Can I just pick you up on that? I 
particularly examined uh, Dr. Haldane's studies, I found his analysis of the Sumerian interest rates, uh, <laughs> 3000 BC, not that I have personal experience with that uh, suspect. Oh, I don't think you're right. I mean, look, it says 20, and I'm sure it was only 19. Exactly. <laughs> but picking up on your point, it's actually interesting to see, underlying what you're saying, there are two major things that you've raised. One is on the policy, and one is on the demographics. Just looking at the policies, now, not only are the policies basically ineffective, and the most important thing is, as Winston Churchill once remarked, you know, no matter how much you like the beauty of your strategy, it's sometimes useful to look at the results. And we've basically had eight years of zero interest rates, a lot of government spending, and nothing has happened. Yet there is no acknowledgement on the part of the policymakers that there might be something deeper wrong here. And you mentioned negative interest rates, and it's interesting also, and this is what I find extremely regrettable, is the fact that policymakers are now essentially Essentially, they're writers for Pravda, is the best way I would describe it. And I'll give you an example of that. Now, just think about it logically, because everybody in this room has some money in a bank. What negative interest rates really mean is that you put $100 in, at the end of the year, you get back, say, $98. And that's basically a way of reducing debt. But you now have a concerted sort of process where leading economists like Lawrence Summers and a whole bunch of other people are writing erudite papers which basically say, look, we need to actually ban cash. And they're putting all sorts of reasons like, oh, it's inefficient, you know. And the best explanation I had was, look, you shouldn't handle notes. You could catch all sorts of disease from it. And I thought, I actually like handling money, believe it or not. I'm not really think that's the issue. But Haldane, to his credit, came out and actually gave the reason. He said, in the next crisis, which I think is coming and sooner than we think, we're going to have to cut interest rates. Interest rates are too low. So we're going to have to go massively into negative territory. And that policy can be defeated by people taking out their money and putting it under the bed. And by the way, in Japan, I saw this in the 1990s when home safe sales were the only growth industry in Japan in the 1990s for obvious reasons. And we're now seeing that in Switzerland and Japan again. But what Haldane said was, well, We've got to stop people taking the money out of the bank. And basically, this is what we need to ban cash. And to Haldane's credit, he said, this was really not an economic matter. This was a social and political matter. And it was above his pay grade, though I don't think he'll be making too many speeches like that in the future. I think somebody's going to vet every one of his speeches before he does it. So we have this deep, deep degree of dishonesty on the part of policymakers, which I find disturbing. Because it's one thing to say, look, we don't have an answer. Let's all sit down and try to come up with an answer but let's not lie. And once a society gets like Russia, which Alexander Solzhenitsyn described as well as anybody, he says the permanent lie has become the only safe form of existence. And that's the society we live in. And that goes to your, uh, to your question. If we're going to solve problems, you've got to have some basic honesty and trust of solving them. But if we're not even going to confront them, and on the demographics, I mean, essentially, not only did my generation and your generation borrow money, but we basically promised ourselves entitlements, which were never properly financed. And particularly at negative interest rates, how the hell pension liabilities and insurance liabilities are going to be met in the future is basically beyond my capacity to calculate. And Wolfgang Schäuble, who's a German finance minister, actually admitted that with negative interest rates, the entire German insurance company system and pension system is bankrupt. 
which, um, oh, John. Cheery. Yeah, it's cheery. <laughs> it um, gets worse. <laughs> uh, which, what you've just uh, said, I mean, brings us to the, the, the heart of what we're here to talk about tonight, which is how the next generation is, you know, going to cop this. There's a terrific um, Groucho Marx quote in your book, Das, why should I care about future generations? What have they ever done for me? <laughs> um, and it, it does, t I mean, it wraps it up. It's just delicious, isn't it? Uh, but it also reminded me that, of course, this question about what's the next generation going to do, this is an eternal question, isn't it? Uh, why is it different now? Why should, I have one-year-old twins at home, and honest to God, I reckon if I had read this book, you know, two years ago, I might have thought twice. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I really don't know what to say. If I have to determine people's reproductive decisions, it's way above my pay grade, I can tell you that. That's basically it. All right, let me put it another way. Uh, one-year-old twins that were born in the past 12 months are going to face a very, very different future. Tell us what that might look like. Look, the first thing is they're going to have to bear this debt. Now, we are in mythology land, and we are told constantly this debt will take care of itself, and we hear this sort of fancy footwork like, you know, we owe it to ourselves. This debt, we owe it to ourselves because every borrower there is a creditor. It doesn't work that way. Ultimately, this has to be paid in money or in assets. That's where it's got to be paid for. And if it's not us and we won't be able to pay it, we're just going to pass this liability on to the next generation. So they're going to start that way behind the actual game. I'll give you a number which is interesting. There's an economist at Morgan Stanley who started to ask the question of what the cost of this was. So what he did is he constructed a model, which is a really simple model. He said, well, if I'm a government or a country, what's my revenue? It's taxes. On the other side, what are my liabilities? And my liabilities are obviously the debt I have, any commitments I have that I've made, like aged care, health care, provided I'm going to honour them. I believe governments will not honour any of these, by the way, but that's a different story. But if I actually add them up and see what my revenues are versus my outgoings, what does the number look like? And basically, according to that calculation, I'll give you the United States. The United States comes up at minus 800. In other words, their liabilities are eight times their assets. Now, if you were a company operating, I mean, you'd be at the bankruptcy. You'd make Nathan Tinkler look like a very conservative financial manager. You know, basically, that's what you'd look like. So that's the first cost they're going to have to bear. The second is, in the taxation system, they're going to be taxed. And they're not going to get any services. And you can do that calculation again. And the World Bank did that calculation. And it worked out every generation, your generation, my generation, the amount of taxes we paid versus the benefits we got, the benefits are greater than the taxes. The only generation, interestingly enough, they found, which would actually have to pay more taxes than the benefits, was people under 18. And obviously, as this goes on, that amount of liabilities is going to rise. They're going to have to pay for us in some shape or form. And then look at the resources. We have cheap oil prices, so everybody's very excited. I'm not excited at all. Because if you think about it, we never think about it. One gallon of petrol, four and a half litres or whatever it is, took 10 tonnes of plant and organic matter, 
buried under pressure and heat for about several hundred million years to create. And we burn through that in a matter of minutes. And the entire human race and the spirit of prosperity is some way linked to fossil fuels. And we're going to take the product of billions of years and consume it in a couple of hundred. And people are going, oh, no, 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 there'll be, there'll be other forms of energy. But that's not the point. The point is we operate a scorched earth policy. We just use things up. So you look at all of those. You look at environment, and I actually have a, have a view that, you know, all these climate change meetings, for instance, the best thing you could do is stop having them because that's actually a ch cheaper way to reduce emissions because 10,000 people flying to Paris surely as hell adds to emissions. <laughs> But basically, you look at the plot, we're going to reduce by two degrees if you assume COP21, right? Firstly, if you look at the commitments, it's not going to come down by two. We all know that. And we all know it's not about bringing it down by two, because that would, in five years' time, bring it down to 2005 levels. We know we have to go to zero emissions. Otherwise, these people are going to live in gas masks. Your children are going to live in gas masks. And is that a world we really want to create? I don't know. John. Yeah. <laughs> so let's try and unpack that a little. I want to talk about. I want to talk about growth. I want to talk about long-term um, sustainability because a lot of this is ultimately about sustainability. Um, and then I want to talk about what choices we make. Uh, and, and firstly, if we just frame it in that terms of sustainability, the kind of classic definition of sustainability is precisely that we essentially see the next generation at least no worse off than we are, and hopefully better. That's kind of the core definition. Whether they, you're thinking about that from an environmental perspective or an economic perspective, it's actually a pretty good definition, and actually underlies, I think, a lot of what we're talking about here. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, if we are really in a world in which um, we, in fact, do hand the world on in a better state, at least economically, we'll come to the resources in a minute, uh, than we found it, it's not surprising that each generation, as it were, takes a bit more out of the pot than it puts in. By definition, if you are seeing growth, then each generation will be better off than the last one. Uh, and just given the way our government finances work out, you know, essentially what happens is that you pay taxes during your life, you wind up being a neck taker out of the pot um, in the last part of your life. And so not surprisingly, pretty much every generation has been a net taker out of the pot. And that is actually sustainable so long as economic growth keeps up at some rate relative to the rate at which we are taking money out of the pot, and that's the big if. So that brings me to, well, where is Australia on this? And if you look at just the last six years, um, we can look at that kind of equation of how much do households put in in terms of taxes relative to how much they take out. And not surprisingly, most households aged 35 uh, to 40 are basically um, net contributors. Most households aged sort of 40-odd um, tend to, in fact, be more or less about even because the costs of their children's education gets attributed to the household. Most households aged 50 are net contributors again. Most households aged 65 plus are net takers. No surprises. But what is interesting is that if you look at just the last six years we've got data for, which is basically between 2003 and um, those 65-plus households went from being net takers of $22,000 a year in real terms to $32,000 a year in real terms. So that was a very, very big shift. You multiply through by the number of households, that's about $10 billion a year in Australia. 
uh, sorry, about 20 billion a year in Australia. That's about half of the federal government's deficit. You want to explain away what's happened in terms of the growth of structural deficits in Australia? This intergenerational story is a very big part of what has been going on. And is that sustainable? I don't know. We're still trying to do the work, but you know, instinct says you'd want to be lucky. Um, so that's the second thing I'd say, which is growth is fine so long as you get it, and it can help with this problem, and indeed it can make it sustainable, but it depends on just how big the take is out of the pot and whether that take is increasing. And of course, we've got a double problem. One is that take has materially increased, and then at the same time, growth rates have fallen across the developed world. Now, Das and I can probably spend all evening talking about what might be driving that. It may be that rates of innovation are slowing, it may be a demographic story, all sorts of theories, but the bottom line is, since before the financial crisis, growth rates have been falling and have fallen quite a long way. So that's what makes it particularly unsustainable. But then the third part is, okay, so how does this play out in Australia? as opposed to overseas. Because in Australia, when you've got Commonwealth government debt at, you know, call it 16% of GDP, we have much less of a problem than most other places. We have much less of an intergenerational transfer than most places. Despite what you might read, on, hear, read in the papers a lot, particularly the more right-wing of the papers, we in fact have quite small government by OECD standards. Um, so we have plenty of choices we could make. We also don't have particularly large unfunded pension liabilities. Now, we got wise to this quite some time ago. The federal government basically and the state governments more or less shut down their defined benefit schemes now the better part of 30 years ago. Uh, and so we don't have this enormous pension liability that many of the European governments have. On the other hand, the precise thing we are doing at the moment is not sustainable, and there is every chance that we will do what the Europeans have done over the last 20 years, continue to make a series of unsustainable choices, and then we will have a problem that there may well not be a remedy to. We really will wind up with your children less well off than we are. But my point is, I do think Australia is a bit different. We are still early enough in this, we've made enough wise choices in the past that it's not inevitable. If you ask me how does Germany and Greece get out of this, I say, oh, look, I just don't know. I, I can't see any way that the next generation can be better off. In Australia, we have choices to make. Can I just pick up on two points that you made? Because I think they're very interesting points. The first point you make is absolutely correct about debt. Australia's government debt is lower, though the 16% is federal government debt. Once you add state government, it's a lot higher than that. But the fundamental thing is, if I look at Australian debt, it's about the redistribution between household debt and basically government debt that actually is the issue. Now, the first thing I would say is, in my experience, that distinction is false. And let me explain what I mean by that. If all households stop paying the debt, then the fundamental thing is it transfers the risk to two people, which is the banks, because obviously if you don't pay your debts, the banks have a problem. And by the way, you also own bank shares. Australia is deeply conflicted. You own the shares in the banks who lend you money, which is kind of confusing in the greater scheme of things. <laughs> but then the other problem with that is it also is the pension funds, because the pension funds indirectly own some of this debt as well. And what happens in a crisis, and I can tell you that, and John's worked in banks, and I've spent most of my life in banks, is there's this wonderful conversation that takes place with the finance minister or treasurer, which is the bank says, well, I'm actually bankrupt, so I'll go and see the treasurer. And he says to the treasurer, look, I'm bankrupt. And the treasurer gives him a speech 
about you know capitalism and how you know the chips have to lie where they fall, all that sort of stuff. And and I've been in this position, so I know exactly what to say, which is I basically say, Treasurer, that's a very courageous decision. I hope you understand <laughs> that on Monday when people put their cards into machines, there will be no payment system and they won't be able to take money out. And you understand the entire system as we know it will cease to function. But look, you know, we respect your capitalist principles and I think you will go down in history as perhaps the greatest capitalist of them all. That's if you last past Monday. That's basically <laughs> what I would say. And under those circumstances, we have observed in places like Ireland and in Europe that debt reverts to the government balance sheet with surprising alacrity. So I think the distinction between public and private, I think is important to be very careful about making that. Yeah. The second point I would make about the pension schemes and so forth, you're quite correct. In Australia, Paul Keating's genius was to understand that the government couldn't pay the pension, so he thought, let everybody be on their own. So basically, you were moved to what's called defined contribution schemes, where you put your money in and basically you were reliant on your savings plus the earnings on that savings. Now, let me put a few facts into context. If you're now 25 and you're going to retire in, say, 40 years' time, roughly, you're going to need the equivalent of about $750,000 in today's terms to get $50,000, which is what most of the super funds define as enough if you're in your own home for a couple. Now, let me put that into context of what you actually retire on in Australia in terms of the pensions and the savings that you have. An average man retires on 200,000 and an average woman receives 110,000. So it's not adequate. In fact, the debate we should be having is whether people will be able to afford to retire at all. And then the question becomes that liability, while it's theoretically private to pay for your retirement, then becomes a social issue of does the state have to pay for it anyway? And in many ways, I see the retirement system in Australia and any other system like that is kind of a fake system because it's enriched a whole bunch of fund managers and so forth, but it hasn't actually achieved the desired result, which is to ensure that people had adequate savings for their retirement. And that's a debate which we refuse to have and, and as you know, in Australia, we can't have any debate about anything which is going to cost anybody any money. So basically, we're not going to have that debate at the moment. And it's a very dangerous debate not to have. Mm. Can, can I suggest two things? One is um, I hear you uh, that uh, private debt often winds up getting socialised as government debt. And clearly, that's how a number of governments to get themselves into big trouble. Um, in an Australian context, though, I don't know the numbers elsewhere, but it does matter in terms of the distribution. Uh, the bottom line is that when government borrows money, very disproportionately, younger households will pay it back. They're the ones who are going to be paying taxes for a long time. And of course, in Australia, we've set up a system in which the tax-free threshold for over 65s is about 50% higher than it is for everyone else. Uh, we've set up a system in which they can kind of put their assets into a, a scheme in which they pay zero tax on any of the earnings. So essentially, paying taxes for over 65s in Australia has more or less become optional. Now, there are obvious problems with that, and it's one of the reasons that the net take of older households has become so large. But it does mean that when governments take on an additional debt, it means that debt will primarily be taken on by young households, or will be paid back by young households. In Australia, if you look at that distribution of household debt, it's of, of private debt, it's a bit smoother. So the older households have a bit more skin in that particular game. So that's, the, that's why I suspect 
you're, you're right that we can't make too much of that distinction, but it does matter. But let me move on to I, talking I, about... I just want to... I'm going to intervene here, because I, I want to get back to your previous um, response um, and two things that came up uh, for me with that. And, Das, you can respond to... And then, John. The first is, and, you know, the big but. The big... And it's, it's the question that looms at the heart of all of this is this assumption, which I'm beginning to feel uh, the more years go by is an insane in assumption, that growth will continue forever. And it's as if we just have to believe it or the whole deck comes tumbling down. So that's the first one. The second thing in response, you talk about Australia being in not uh, as bad a position as, as others, and I think probably most Australians instinctively feel that, but they don't know why, um, is that the response to that surely down the track, if the growth prediction is wrong, is that we will start building walls of all sorts and we'll have our own... Um, Donald Trump's advocating it too, uh, in order for that to happen. So, and and as you were saying it, I'm thinking, oh, I'm so glad I'm Australian. I'm so glad I'm Australian. A rise in nationalism has to accompany that isolation. I think the word you use in the book is autarky. Is that right? Yeah, that's a lovely Greek word. Beautiful uh, Greek word. Uh, most Greek words are nice. It's the Greek never actually understand them and use them to manage their economy. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's Greek. It just means closed economies, yeah. basically. So how do you respond? Look, my first response is I've always found growth to be an odd term. And I think the reason I find it odd is if you look at the Earth in its totality, it's pretty much a closed system. There's a bit of externality, which is sunlight, basically. But in a closed system, to be able to grow infinitely is difficult. And I talk to scientists, and scientists basically all tell me that it defies most laws of physics and chemistry, essentially. The second element of that is you've got to understand that growth, if you look at history, is a very recent phenomenon. It only started in the middle of the 19th century. Until that point in time, there was minimal growth in the economy. I'll tell you that in the 17th and 18th century, or up to the 17th of 18th century, growth was about 1% per century. So that puts it into perspective. We're looking for now 2 3 4% per annum, which is kind of completely odd. And I think the reality is that growth is unique to this period of history, and we're not going to be able to generate it for a whole bunch of reasons. But ultimately, why do we need the growth? Because we've gotten hooked on living standards, which basically means buying more and more things, because that's how we measure it, most of which we don't need, by the way, but that's a different story. But we basically need to do that, and we've used debt as one of the sort of lubricants of that process. But the other thing about growth, which people don't want to talk about, is a distributional issue. Because to keep, to your point about keeping societies together, there is the question of the haves and the have-nots, although these days you have to add the haves but have not paid for what they have as well into that equation. But basically, if you look at trying to distribute within societies, there's only two ways you can redistribute. One is take something from somebody. But if the economy is growing, it's kind of easier because if you have relatively different growth rates that the less well-off have higher growth rates than those, it's a painless adjustment. And that's not only within countries. 
that's basically between countries, between emerging countries which are poorer. And you look at the climate change debates and all of that, and that's what they're really at, at heart about. So I think you've got to look at why we need growth. And now, of course, we desperately need growth, because without growth and inflation, dealing with the debt problem is nigh impossible. So I think it's a good place to start with growth is to understand why we need it in the first place and understand that it's not a common phenomenon. And I think I've always uh, believed that Edward Abbey, who's an interesting environmentalist, he was a nut job, but he was a very interesting environmentalist, he always, uh, there's a pithy line in one of his books, which is that endless and mindless growth is the ideology of a cancer cell. And I think the human race should reflect on that statement quite closely. <laughs> yeah, I think it depends on what you mean by growth. If, if what we mean by growth is essentially us living slightly better lives next year than we did this year, it's possible, depending on what kind of better we mean. So in particular, if we mean better health services than we had last year, it's quite possible because a lot of that improvement is not about spending more resources, or at least using up more exotic metals or whatever it might be. It's often about doing whatever we do in a better way. And if you look at most of the growth across the last couple of hundred years, it's been about that kind of innovation that doesn't necessarily, often does, but doesn't necessarily use more resources. It certainly uses those resources to much better effect. And I think that this is where, you know, this is where the Club of Rome goes, in my view, completely wrong. Any time we have a scarce resource and we price it, then by and large we find ourselves innovating our way mostly out of trouble. So as soon as you price scarce resources, people will generally find a way of innovating um, so that they can continue to see improvements in how they live, but nevertheless live with those scarce resources not being a limit on whatever it is that they do. Because one of the things about pricing resources, as soon as you do it, if they become really, really scarce and the price really starts to jump and the incentives for innovation become incredibly strong. And indeed, if you look at the history of when we do get around to scarcing, uh, pricing scarce environmental goods, and I'd be the first to say we don't do that often enough, but when we do, actually we usually get surprised by how fast we innovate. So you look at the history of pollution markets, say, for example, around um, uh, sulphur dioxide, nitrogen dioxide uh, pollutants, which, of course, are very bad for people's health. Uh, we finally got around to pricing them in the US, amongst other places. And after about two or three years, the price of those pollutants actually crashed because the innovation had been so much faster than had been expected. And indeed, you look at the history of pollution markets as we did in a um, somewhat inventively titled publication, Markets to Reduce Pollution, uh, at Grattan Institute, and we found that this was a repeating pattern. Any time you price these scarce environmental goods, in this case, you did get a lot of innovation and it did get you out of trouble. Now, of course, there's a very big if to all of that. If you do not get around to pricing something like carbon emissions, then you will continue to get problems accumulating. If you do not price your fisheries properly, and globally we by and large have not priced our fisheries properly, then you will continue to get uh, exhaustion of fish, fish stocks and so on. So I think that we can continue to have growth because what it essentially means is, will we continue to get innovation? Uh, and bearing in mind that the cost of replicating innovations is by and large extremely low, the real cost. 
Um, and if you look at the course of human, at least the last 250 years, we have been very good at innovation. And there is no reason to believe that innovation is going to stop. I think there are reasons to believe that innovation might be slower over the next, call it 100 years, than it has been over the last 100 years. There's plenty of reasons to believe that we will need to price scarce resources, particularly the right um, pollution, much better than we have. But I think there's lots of reasons to believe that we can do that, uh, and that if we do, we will continue to innovate, and that if we continue to innovate, our children will have, or at least there will be, on average, better lives than we had, say, 30 years ago. The question, of course, is how will that be distributed? Uh, and you're absolutely right to say it may not be particularly well distributed within societies, and it may not be particularly well distributed between different countries, and it may well not be particularly well distributed between generations, and I guess that's why we're here to talk about it. I beg to differ. <laughs> You're quite scathing about more recent innovation, aren't you, Das? And I mean, I'm very sort of frightened, John, about what you just said about the next 100 years possibly being a, a slowdown for innovation because we're not even at a, a, a really inspiring point at the very moment where we need the equivalent of the steam engine uh, or the aeroplane uh, once again. Well, first thing I would say is... Uh I actually traded sulfur dioxide and nitrous oxide futures. I was actually involved in that. And the first thing I learned about that, it was a fraud. Basically, because the intention was not to actually reduce it. It was just basically to put a nice sort of gloss on it. Ultimately, what changed all of that was the fact that Canada, which was actually getting the acid rain because water mixed with sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxide creates sulfuric and nitrate oxide. It was falling on Canadian forests. And the Canadians basically went to the White House and basically said, you know, Ronnie, we're not a warlike people. But this, this might rouse even us Canadians. And there was an acceptance of that. And then what happened, and I, and I traded this stuff, so I knew exactly what was going on, is what they did was they clamped the quotas right down. Okay, they clamped the quotas right down. So basically what now had, the price actually went up massively. And then what actually happened was people started to actually reduce those emissions. But the point is, I accept that the markets can set prices, but I don't accept that it's going to be free of cost. Oh. Because essentially what then happened was the cost of electricity generation and all the industries which actually were the emitters, their cost structure went up massively. And that was passed on because they basically said it's a cost of doing business, so we're going to pass it on. So I accept that markets may be able to distribute some of these costs, but I don't accept it's going to be free of cost in the sense that the cost of goods and services are going to go up, and that's going to be where living standards are affected. Now, let me take that one step further. Because market mechanisms work quite well, but there are some physical constraints. And let me raise a couple of them. One is water. The usable water on the planet is only 2.5% of the water on the Earth. And we pollute it, and we do all sorts of dreadful things to it. And if you see the drop in aquifer levels around the world and the usable water that is there, people forget that the toast you had this morning requires 40 litres of water. The coffee you had, the espresso, was 140 litres of water. The bacon, that nice crispy bacon, 
was about 480 liters of water. We need 2,000 to 5,000 liters of water a day just to live like this. And water is actually a finite resource. And the way our use of water is going up, we require a new Rhine River every year. And that just is not possible. So it's not about a market pricing mechanism. There is a constraint. Similarly with growing food, because the actual acreage under cultivation has stayed at about 3.4 billion acres for a very, very long period of time. Yet we have to produce 50% more food in the next 40 or 50 years in terms of number of people, changing dietary habits as the emerging markets get richer, they want more protein. And the only way we can do it is play around with basically crop yields. And crop yields aren't growing now at the same rate they were in the immediate post-war eras. So I don't accept that just a market mechanism can overcome some physical constraints. And this is an area where I've talked deeply to scientists involved in these areas. Because I was interested as whether a market pricing mechanism would encourage new research. And they're saying basically at all of these levels, it changes behaviors. And we've got to become much more parsimonious in using certain things. So you can't have golf courses in the middle of deserts, for God's sake. You know, it just doesn't work. But that has living standards implications as well. So I think you can use markets to do this, but to actually sell the story, I suppose, that it will be without effects on living standards, I don't think is actually the right answer. Ultimately, in my view, it's very straightforward. Living standards around the world, leaving aside distributions, have to fall by 30 to 50%. And it's a question of whether it'll fall in a year or it'll fall gradually. And my belief is we can sit here, dance on the head of the pin, whichever we like. It's going to happen. And it's a question of how that's happened. And I have always believed that if something's going to happen and it's not nice, then it's best to have a considered discussion about it and then do it in a way which is manageable as distinct from stumbling into it with all the social consequences and the disturbances what we would call the Trumpism. Actually, I now refer to the Trump phenomenon in the Americas as the American Spring. It's uh, not the Arab Spring, it's the American Spring that's actually occurring. <laughs> I, 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 I think water is a really interesting example, and it's again an interesting example of where Australia has made different choices and has different outcomes. So um, uh, if you go anywhere in the world and want to talk about how do you deal with water, the first thing they say is, well, why don't you go and talk to the Australians? Um, you know, we don't realise... However imperfect the Water Act might be, we are streets ahead of the rest of the world on this stuff. Uh, we set up effect effectively tradable water marks, markets now, well, in Victoria, um, better part of 30 years ago, uh, and that's gradually become a national scheme. We are today using less agricultural water than we did uh, 25 years ago. There is more, um, effectively, environmental water than there was 25 years ago, and yet agricultural productivity has gone up, and in particular, water productivity, if you measure it as the economic value of, you know, essentially irrigated um, agricultural production per litre of water has roughly doubled. So there has been a very material change in water productivity in Australia. And essentially what we have tended to do is take activities that used to use a lot of water and produce very little, and we've stopped doing them. And we've essentially used the water a lot more in, ag in agricultural activities where the value of the production is very high relative to the water used. So I think it's a good example of where markets do work. You're absolutely right. That is not a costless process. But then what we're in is a world of thinking through, OK, so I'm pricing some scarce environmental goods. Inherently, that has an economic cost. 
I'm, that economic cost may be less than I thought it might be in advance because I do get innovations that I hadn't necessarily predicted. And then how does that additional cost look relative to the additional benefits I'm getting in other places where I'm innovating and there aren't such resource constraints? So health's a really good example of that. If you look at Australia, we have seen life expectancies improve by about three months for every 12 months for the last, essentially, since about 1975. So what's that, about 40 years. Um, the years of life without a disability have materially increased. Not quite as fast as life expectancy, but nevertheless, materially. Um, years, uh, sorry, the, the rates of death from amenable mortality, which is this kind of health economics concept that's a bit difficult to wrap your mind around, but as far as I can make out, what it roughly means is take all of the deaths from diseases that some of the time medical science can prevent, uh, and how many people actually die from those diseases per year. And roughly speaking, the answer is, well, the number of deaths from those kinds of diseases has halved, again, over a 20-year period. Now, on any view of, life, of the world, living for longer in better health is a material improvement in living standards. Um, so I think it's a good example of where we have seen material improvements um, in living standards, essentially as the result of innovation. Now, does that game come to an end? Yes, it probably does, uh, eventually. Um, uh, you'll certainly get diminishing returns. But on the other hand, it's a good example of where we have seen material innovation and material improvements that probably outweigh whatever it is we spent extra on the water side, to take that example, um, uh, because we essentially had to spend more resources producing food than we used to. Dash, you actually write in your book that not only should voluntary euthanasia um, be law, that, but that a lot of people might want to take advantage of it early because the living standards are going to drop so much. I was actually thinking when John was saying that, that uh, the basic model seems to be we will live forever but not have any money or expect other people to pay for our lives forever. I think all of those contribute materially to our lives, but it will mean everybody will have to work till they drop, because essentially they're gonna to have to pay for it. And I was thinking the other day, it would be kind of interesting if I wandered onto a plane and I saw the pilot was a 98-year-old. <laughs> it, it might somewhat create just the modicum of concern in, of my personal safety. But the more important thing is, this is all gonna to have to be paid for, and I think Fundamentally, John's arguments are correct up to a point, but there is an issue about how much money there is. And ultimately, it comes down to the fact that unless we're growing, then basically the money pool isn't growing to fund that. And that's the dilemma that we've never really resolved. And I think the way we've resolved this is, is the most inelegant way possible, which is we've said, well, we'll bring everything forward and we as a generation will consume it, and leave the detritus for other people to innovate in the future <laughs> to deal with. And I think one of the key words, and I use this in the book, and you'll pardon me for quoting it, is Edmund Burke, who is one of the most remarkable philosophers ever to have lived, once said that society is not a bond between the living. It is a bond between those who are living, those who are dead, and those who are yet to come. And unless we balance our appetites, 
our desires across that sort of time horizon, it's very difficult to see how we can reach an equitable society or a sustainable one. I'm going to ask one more question and then um, hand it over to the audience. So put your hand up and wait for a mic to be put in it uh, now while I ask each of you about... Uh, we know that um, Malcolm Turnbull is going through a period of a sort of golden policy silence at the moment. And I'm hoping uh, that he's really pondering all this deeply and thinking of coming out and being frank about, about talking about the economy and talking about uh, future generations and talking about the environment. Uh, how, how likely is that, John, that, that uh, we're going to see some policies in the next six months that really could um, at least be truthful to oh. our challenges? Predicting politicians is definitely beyond my pay grade, but oh um, come on, it's not that it's not that hard. <laughs> um, uh, based on based on the last few years, you wouldn't want to be holding your breath. I, I think it might be more interesting to talk about well, what should they do. Um, so uh, when you run a budget deficit, you essentially borrow from the future. As we've said, that's not sustainable. Um, uh, the bottom line is that what Australia is uh, spending its money on is by and large. Um, uh, lower taxes for older households. They pay less income tax than they did 20 years ago, which is incredible, really. Um, uh, materially increased spending on health, which is, as I said, by and large working, uh, and uh, material increase in old age pensions. Um, so what do we have to do uh, in order to make budgets sustainable? Bottom line is that taxes will have to go up, uh, and we will need to look at what we can do on the expense side, and there's bits and pieces here and there. Um, but I think it's important to get budgets under balance because otherwise we are essentially borrowing from our future in a way that is not sustainable. And we have a series of tax settings which are essentially very skewed towards older taxpayers, so they essentially don't pay very much tax, and that's um, clearly uh, not sustainable. Careful, either. John, you're upsetting the audience. I realise that, <laughs> but, you know, that's my job. Uh, <laughs> uh, we will... We'll also need to look at um, what can we do to make our health system more efficient? What can we do to make sure that when we spend infrastructure money, we actually spend it on things that really will essentially more than pay for themselves in terms of the social and economic benefits that they provide? We need to look at our education system and, and work out how do we make it work better for at least... no, you know, um, and, ..and in a more efficient way. Unfortunately, all of this stuff's really boring. Um, and it's a game of inches, uh, and, and I suspect it implicit in that is saying, you know, this kind of lower growth rate that we're talking about generally, maybe that's also going to be true of government, that the kinds of reforms we will see over the next 10 years, 20 years, may be more of the kind of small incremental gain stuff rather than the really exciting stuff like floating the dollar and opening the economy in terms of pulling down tariff barriers. You know, you only get to do that stuff once. We've done all of that stuff. In the same way, you only get to invent electricity once. Um, so we've done all of that stuff, and maybe a lot of what we see from here is actually smaller picture, tightening every nut that you can find, but inherently it's not the stuff that makes for particularly exciting announcements. This is the most exciting time to be an Australian. <laughs> I don't agree, John. I think this is the greatest opportunity for a politician, if that name is to be worth anything, to actually rise and be a leader. 
Galbraith once said very clearly that the mark of a great leader is to recognize the one single issue of the day, to grasp it, and to do what is right, and I repeat, right, not popular, without any heed for the consequences. We do not have political leaders in this country or anywhere else in the world. They're a bit like Robespierre. There goes the crowd. I've got to get in front of it. So if Malcolm Turnbull or whoever is in power wants to do what is right, he would be recognized for what he is, true leader, Besides which, if he's wrong, as you know, immortality can be assured by the most grievous error, just as the most marvellous success. Uh, over to you. <laughs> um, anybody want to ask a question? There we are. It's, it's more of a comment than a question. You keep talking about people over 60 not paying tax. But... That may be true of income tax, but there's GST, and I'm sure that if you looked at a lot of people over 60, they would consume much of their income, whether that comes from a pension, which wasn't taxed uh, and earned money and when it came out. And there's also taxes of everyday life, things like land taxes, like rates and water rates. So taxes are paid, just not income. Yeah, uh, and that's absolutely true, but um, we've, if you look at how they've shifted between different generations over time, you can see that essentially um, uh, sales taxes, so things like GST, have gone up at about the same rate for all cohorts, uh, but there's this very big mismatch with income tax. And bearing in mind that you know that's uh, far and away the largest part of the tax collections of the Commonwealth Government, indeed of all governments in Australia, um, when you see uh, a generation which has had increased participation rates, so more people over the age of 65 are working than they used to be, they've had real wages go up, as indeed real wages have essentially gone up for everyone in Australia over the last, or at least for the, the vast majority over the last 20 years. And at the same time, that's a generation that is paying less income tax in real terms than 65-year-olds 20 years ago, you have to believe that something has changed. And the short answer is we have changed the income tax rules, we have changed the superannuation rules, and it's a very, very big swing. It's a swing in the order of about four or $5,000 per household. That adds up extremely quickly. So you're right to pull me up and say, oh, the households are paying some tax. Of course they are paying some tax. My point is they are paying less income tax, quite a lot less income tax in real terms than 65-plus-year-old households 20 years ago, uh, despite the fact that, in fact, we should have seen a larger increase for that generation, or sorry, for that age cohort, than we have for all the other age cohorts. Sorry, I, I didn't have anything to add. To sorry. Discussion in uh, recent days about superannuation, um, I just get, I'd like to get your comments upon, you know, do you think we should scrap the superannuation system that we have at the moment, which is clearly not providing, or not taking away from, gov the gov not reducing government budgetary pressures out in the, out in the future? So should we scrap it or should we reform it, is my question. Hooray! <laughs> Somebody actually has thought about this. It's not going to provide for your retirement. You're going to have to work forever. So there's no point in basically... <laughs> 
putting money aside and enriching some of my former colleagues who are now fund managers who basically take out $20 billion in fees every year for managing money. So basically, actually, if you were a really astute and cunning politician, you would actually get rid of the superannuation levy. And what you would immediately do is an uplift because that money would be spent. And that would actually create a huge uplift. Now, there are some huge long-term consequences of that. But as long as you can assume that at the same time you make the system user pays for health, aged care, and you're going to work forever, and just have a basic disability scheme for people who can't work, that is a very doable society. And to some extent, if you look at pre-war societies, pre-Second World War societies, that's actually how they were structured. And maybe that's the debate. I'm not saying that's an answer. I'm just being provocative. But I'm saying that is a debate we should have. But as you know, we can't debate anything because it might offend somebody who might potentially just might vote for me. And that, that kind of debate is the kind of debate. What you're raising is the kind of debate we need to have where everything is on the table and we debate it properly. Um, I'd absolutely agree with you. The age pension age needs to go up, although I don't think we need to be in a world in which we say people will get zero retirement. I think that is, some retirement is sustainable, but as you say, it can't just keep going um, indefinitely as it, is the mo as it is at the moment with uh, a shift in the age pension age from 65 to 67, and that's kind of it. But let me focus much more on the superannuation system. I think it, it's helpful in the superannuation system to divide the, the, the community into roughly three groups. There's the group between zero and 20% in terms of income. They are never going to have any material superannuation. Uh, it's never going to make any material difference to their retirement incomes. They will essentially be more or less completely dependent on the age pension. That's where we are. Then there's a group between 20 and 80, where the age pension will make a material difference. It will mean that their retirements are more comfortable than they would be otherwise. They will probably still get some age pension, but it does have an impact on government finances. It does mean that although we don't see a big shift in the number or in the proportion of people getting an age pension, we do see a material reduction in the number of people getting a full age pension, and essentially they're paying for more of their retirement themselves. So it's not like superannuation, and in particular the compulsory part of superannuation, has no impact. It does have a quite material impact for that middle group, and it does mean that their retirements are likely to be more comfortable than they would be otherwise. Whose retirements are we talking about? Well, well which, how many years are we talking about here? Well, for, for a substantial number of years. When you remember that the average retirement, uh, sorry, the average superannuation fund at the moment um, for men is in the order of about 200,000, you know, that's not going to fund 100% of your retirement, but it is going to make a difference. It will be more comfortable than it would be otherwise. And then there's the group at the top, the top 20%, little secret. They are currently earning um, as a household probably in the order of about $130,000, $140,000 a year. They are not planning to live on the age pension of $30,000. And indeed in Australia, as around the world, you can see that top 20% always save for their retirement. The amount they save is actually remarkably insensitive to tax rates. Nevertheless, that's where a large chunk, more than half of the superannuation tax concessions go, is to support the savings of that top 20% who were never going to qualify for an age pension in the first place and were always going to save for their own retirement. That is the part of the superannuation system that has to change. The superannuation tax concessions for that top 20% are ludicrously generous and serve no policy purpose. 
because these people were by and large never going to qualify for the age pension in the first place. And essentially what we are doing is running a massive taxpayer subsidy for those people to have an even more comfortable retirement than they would have anyway, even though they were never going to get an age pension. So I think when you break up the super system like that, it's pretty obvious where the reform needs to be. Uh, and there are substantial budgetary changes that could make, essentially increase taxes with, you know, in the order of about seven billion a year by changing things that will pretty much only affect that top 20%. Um, and it means that we will have a much more sustainable budget going forward. But John, John, John. <laughs> a lot of those people, given negative interest rates and the rates of return, will not be as high going forward as they have been in the past. That top group will still find it increasingly challenging to get enough money for their retirement. And ultimately, I think all retirement schemes need to remember what Bismarck actually understood. He said the retirement age at 70 when the average life expectancy was 47. Mm. Yeah, and, and indeed you see for that group that often, ironically, they are the ones most likely to work past 65 anyway, although they tend to Hang work... Hang on, they died at 47. How could they work past 65? <laughs> the top 20% tend to work, are more likely to keep working at least part-time. I have to put a stop to this. I'm sorry, we've gone over time. I have to get home to my babies. Um, <laughs> that one, one you were of them, thinking of, them, of not having. One of them's a boy and one of them's a girl, so I think I'm going to go home. I'm going to throw out Hansel and Gretel and Little Red Riding Hood. I'm going to read them a banquet of consequences. <laughs> and I'm going to start giving my baby girl half as much pocket money as my son just so she's prepared for this nightmare ahead of her. That's it for this edition of The Fifth Estate. If two weeks between episodes feels like a nightmare ahead of you, you'll find everything you need to keep your brain well-fed at wheelercentre.com. Next fortnight, Sally talks to political journalist Nikki Sava, whose recent book digs deep into the political partnership between Tony Abbott and Peter Credlin. Until then, take care. <laughs>